Musician Mindset is a conversation series that extracts the performance and preparation thought process from world-class musicians, leaving you with wisdom and exercises to level up your musical journey. Our guest today, David Arana, is a professional musician living and working in the Los Angeles area. He's played for many groups whose interests and beliefs are wide-ranging and colorful, and in general, speak to the better part of the human experience. For this reason, he attributes his long-standing position as the go-to accompanist for the unusual to his ability to fit in with the many faith-based and social service-oriented organizations for whom he has worked. He has enjoyed a long, and profe- long professional and personal relationship with David Bowie pianist extraordinaire Mike Garson. He has backed up such notable artists as Mel Torme, Liza Minnelli, and the Supremes, and is currently serving as pianist and musical director for Engelbert Humperdinck. That's a great bio. <laughs> I, love that. I, I took out wh- the part where I listed all the churches that I work for and all the schools that I work for in chronological order <laughs> over my entire career. But that's I made two bios specifically just like that, not knowing which one I would need. And so for today, I sort of I took out all the lists and I said, no one needs to hear that. Just, you know, I'm a pianist who's working yeah. and I have things to say. <laughs> and we want to hear them. So let's uh, let's do as we usually do, which is go back to the beginning. And uh, do you recall your first performance? Are we talking professional performance or just like little David playing the piano? Well, we're going to start old. little David banging out notes on the piano. Very first live performance and then we'll get into the pro career later. Uh I want to say it was a recital at Cal State Fullerton when I was maybe 10 years old. And my piano teacher, Stan Breckenridge, uh, taught at Cal State Fullerton. And I was playing, was it Knecht Ruprecht? What it was, it's a Robert Schumann piece. Uh, I got through that first, I have a very visual recollection of the page. Two pages, D minor. Played the first four lines, no problem. The fifth line on the bottom of the first page, I couldn't get past the first three notes. Took me out three or four ties, tries, and then eventually I got through it. Uh, and then the rest of the performance was okay. But I remember being pretty nervous at the time. Everything was going okay, and suddenly just total, you know, freeze. Uh, and I thought, well, I don't think I want to have that experience anymore. <laughs> uh, but I did a performance later on with my sister in the same recital. We did a duet, and that was totally fine. Um, maybe that's a reason why I don't do a lot of solo performances anymore, and I'm always with a group. Uh, maybe not. Uh, but I definitely remember that, thinking I never want to be that ill-prepared for a performance. Again, even though I thought I was prepared, um, I didn't have a good technique for, you know, being able to power through, except for just keep starting over and over and over until I actually got it. And, but as I took more lessons and studied more, uh, I learned some great techniques for memorizing music. And uh, I think I'm better at it now. I know a bunch of music now. (laughs) Can you talk about your techniques for memorizing music? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, the time that I really learned it uh, was getting my, well, it took me a long time to finish my my recital at Cal State Northridge. I was an aerospace 
student at University of Colorado Boulder for two years. And when I transferred to Cal State Northridge after two years of music, of engineering studies, most of my credits didn't transfer. So I had to start basically all over again as a student. Uh, taking me four and a half years to finish my undergraduate and then three more semesters to finish my recital because I was working all the time, I suddenly realized, uh-oh, I have to do my recital in eight weeks and memorize a ton of music. How do I do this? Um, I had two teachers. My teacher at Cal State Northridge, uh, that was Frank McGinnis, and uh, Mike Garson, who you mentioned earlier, uh, who I'd been working for but never taking lessons from. And I realized in exchange for doing some work for him, uh, I thought maybe I could get some lessons and help me through this recital. And he had a bunch of techniques for memorizing that I had never tried before. And so he had me playing music at the most god-awful slow pace that imaginable. I thought there's no way that I'm going to be able to memorize uh, you know, a Beethoven sonata at playing it at one quarter speed. It took me literally two hours to play through the piece one time. Uh, uh, what's it? Uh, maybe it was an hour because it's a 15-minute piece. And so I played it at one quarter speed with a metric. And I did that for weeks. And it wasn't until about two weeks before the recital that he started ramping me up in speed. But I had this muscle memory in me that was so even and so controlled that I had no idea that I had this sort of ability within me. But he said, this is the way I do it all the time. Just It's all about muscle memory and training your body to to know where you are and then also escape points in any song he would visually pick you know on this song I need to memorize a song once in one week and uh, I was told to pick escape points throughout the song and be able to play the song in any order from any of these escape points and so we'd number one through ten or so the page song was maybe only six pages long but I could jump to any point and play the song out of order and I was like wow that's crazy he said okay play three seven, one, ten. So I could jump to those spots, and I realized, oh, now I know this music. Wow, so you not only had to memorize the music, you had to memorize what all those miniature sections were within it and then know how to reorganize them on the fly. Yes, and that has been a uh, a technique that I've had to use on stage sometimes if something goes nutty and you're doing a show and someone wants to mix something up sometimes people will just go to a different section of a song right. and you know you realize oh they're not at the bridge they're doing another chorus everyone jumped to the chorus um so it not only helped you memorize it also was like your first uh your first entry into the concept of like being able to change f song form on the fly song form on the fly and also just be flexible uh it's usually not as you have prepared most of your life. You, let's say you prepare a whole show or a whole song and live something's going to go on. Something's going to break. A microphone's not going to be working. Uh, uh, lights go out. Let's say you, I'm doing a show with tracks. The tracks go out. What do you do? The singer needs more time to get on stage. Uh, you just you vamp a section. You call it out. You look at what's going on and you just roll with it. I, that's when I realized, oh, it's not about the page. It's about the moment and just be ready. <laughs> so let's, uh, I want to talk about the engineering. I didn't know that about you, that you, you're studying for engineering. Yeah, I studied aerospace for uh, three semesters. Why did you stop? 
<laughs> because no one wants a B minus aerospace engineer designing the wings that you're going to be flying to Denver on. You know, uh, and I realized there were better engineers, and I was always skipping my computer science class to play in the jazz band. That's what I did, and. That was much more fulfilling to me. And so after three semesters of that, I talked to my parents and I said, you know, I don't think this music thing is really going to work out or the the, the uh, aerospace thing is going to work out. Maybe I should take music classes. And they supported me. They said, do that third semester. So I did two full semesters. And then uh, the third semester, they said, just stick through it one more. If it doesn't work out, then do music classes. That fourth semester at CU Boulder, all music. And I was a straight-A student, and I was very happy, and I was doing a few other things that weren't music-related, but for the most part, that was my world, and it was completely fulfilling, and that's when I got my transfer to Cal State Northridge and started uh, interfacing with the people who would be my professional partners, you know, to this day. Okay, so you have two questions based on that. Um, first one is, have you taken anything from your early engineering studies and applied it to music? Or can you see any connection between well, there's, the two? Well, there's definitely that connection between mathematics and music. Uh, I was told that by my 11-year-old daughter <laughs> yesterday. I was told that by an actor who I'm working for on a TV show. I was told that by so many people over time. And I, I realized it's true. It's mostly about spatial relationships and seeing organic curves, you know, rates of change. How fast do you want to get to the biggest part of your solo? If you're playing a drum solo or, or piano solo, do you want to, you know, hit it all in the first chorus and then let it sort of die out? No, you want to build a nice organic curve. And I used to see these and build these curves in, you know, into my calculus classes. And I could see the rate of change of this and then it does this. Oh, that's the perfect. And I would always try to imagine what's the perfect shape for an airfoil or um, something. And I would see these shapes. This sort of airfoil lifts a wing correctly. And I'd see, like the perfect shape would sometimes be the perfect shape for building a solo. It's almost like a, it's just it's an organic build. And if you look at the shape of a wing, you see how it's thicker at the beginning, then it tapers out and it's smooth. You just have to reverse it because usually that, you know, real big at the beginning and then tapering out slowly to the end is not really the best, I think, way to build a solo if you're improving something. Yeah, really cool. So, and then the second question off of that is you'd said that, that uh, you became an A student almost immediately yeah. after, after going, hey, this is what I really want to be doing. So within that, have you discovered throughout your career that there are maybe styles of music or or something within music that's you've found even deeper this is what i like so it's like okay i i don't want to be doing engineering i want to be doing music has there been a point in your career where you've gone mm. even deeper to that go yeah this is what i really want to be doing in music you know it's funny that you say that because i mentioned uh to someone recently that music theater is my life and I, as much as i don't want it to be <laughs> uh I've done so many jobs that involve, you know, accompanying vocalists. I'm, I guess it's as an accompanist. I'm playing a lot of music theater, not so much doing the shows where, you know, they're kicking and dancing and putting on the, the, the costumes and all. But the music that's involved with music theater is usually very 
interesting. And I always wanted to be a you know a jazz snob and listening to Bill Evans and Keith Jarrett and Oscar Peterson and you know Chick Corea. That was my my world growing up. My, my first introduction to jazz came in around eighth grade, and that's all I listened to high school. I mean, I was the very strange kid who didn't know what all the other music was until someone said, "Here's a song you have to learn." And then I'd say, oh, I hear this chord and I'll figure it out. But I was still just a little jazz snob. And then I realized that, you know, all the music I'm actually performing and playing is I thought I was on airplane mode. There you go. Thanks, everyone. Um, I remember I tried to call someone to get my uh, uh, the microphone. So it's music theater, basically. It's odd to say that, but um, the music that's involved in that is very interesting. I think, and I've never been one to listen to the lyrics to songs. I'm always trying to find the music in the melody and the rhythm and the harmony, but sometimes, maybe it's the way the music theater songs are mixed, the vocals are usually very, very clear, and the singers are trying to tell a story, and you really hear that, and I had to, especially in the last 10 years, really start listening to the lyrics of songs and try and figure out what the song is really about. I used to make up the lyrics for songs I didn't know the lyrics for, thinking, well, this must be what the song is about. Then later on, I find out what the lyrics are, and I, I was completely wrong. But the intent was pretty much in the same ballpark. You can kind of tell from the melody, oh, this is a sad song, but this is a happy song. You know, I don't think there's any others. Right? Yeah, I, I notoriously don't listen to lyrics either. And when I try to, like, sing a song at home, Billy will say, you know that like 50% of those words are wrong, but they might rhyme. Like I'll, I'll still make it rhyme. Rhyming's good. But uh, yeah, I, even whether I'm listening to music or performing, I really don't, as much as I do listen to the vocalist and try to be supportive and, uh, and leave space and fill in the right spots and all that, I don't actually listen to the lyrics at all. And yet I would say in my last two years, since I started working for Engelbert, uh, I have, and I noticed... I have to know the lyrics to the songs. And my, you know, my first day on the job, you know, I got the the gig uh and then I received the music on a Tuesday. I remember it was a Tuesday. I received the music. We flew out on Friday and I did my first show on a Saturday. Music directing the band at these theaters on these coasts for people who are paying, you know, $100 a ticket to see a show. Can't screw it up. Um, I didn't know the lyrics then. I was focusing so much on the piano part. And I was, first first show, buried in the music, buried in the music, not looking up. But knowing that I had to wave my arms around and conduct the orchestra also got me out of the music. Uh, but I didn't know the lyrics to the songs yet. It took a couple of weeks, uh, but I started getting these things to soak into me and I get off the page and then notice when things are, you know, moving a certain direction. Let's say things are falling behind. Let's say um, uh, strings are lagging behind. I can hear that. I can hear uh, if the pitches of background vocals are sharp or flat or rushing or delaying. Everyone has something. There's no one performance that's perfectly squeaky clean. Uh, it's just making sure that we're all together at the end. <laughs> So you say uh, the, the the first show, you're not looking up. You're buried in the music. I was buried. Can you go a little bit deeper on that? Now, not looking up, are you meaning like nonverbal communication with your band? Or? No, I, was, I knew that the job was as a pianist and conductor. So it was that. But I was almost 
afraid to look forward and see the boss doing his thing. I was mostly amazed that I was on this gig within three days or four days. Uh, but uh, I spoke with him and I spoke with some other members of the band directly after the show and they gave me pointers. They, they knew it was my first show, but uh, I needed to get through. And with each show over the next month or two, they would give me feedback that they needed from me directly. And I was, no matter what, I was super green. As you know, even though I'm 48 years old at the time, green in this respect, uh, doing this sort of show. Uh, so I just soaked whatever in I could and got it pretty much. So I don't think I realized that you only had three days from when you got the music to your first show. Yeah. So what can you outline for people specifically what were those three days like other than obviously <laughs> locking yourself in the practice room i mean because you're not only having to learn the whole show you're also having to be in charge of everyone else and i assume everyone else on the band like you just said everyone else had been already doing it right so yeah they're all very solid in their parts and i was just stepping in so you're having to learn the show just to play it but also music direct people who have already been doing the show and you're the leader as the new person that's a really unique situation to be yeah in. they basically i almost felt like they didn't need me to do what i was going to do but i also knew that what i was doing wasn't about what they needed it was what my boss needed um the security of having someone who's comfortable in the show and who can always have your back and that is the main thing with working with i think any artist uh, they want to be free to, and I'm not sure if I said this before, maybe before when we were just sort of chatting a little bit, but the artist for whom I work has to be comfortable enough to do whatever they do and not worry about the music in the background. If they're worried that we're not going to hit this mark or we're going to be at the wrong tempo or be the wrong chords, they can't be totally present and do what they have to do and sell the show and make sure that they're bookings for the next show, right? Uh, so... Yeah, I had no idea. I only had some recordings and a couple of videos I watched on YouTube of previous versions of the band. So I watched a few of those, and they said, be familiar with other versions of these songs. I thought, there's no way that I can learn this many versions within you know, three days. So I studied the one recording I got and um, kind of figured, well, this sounds like a section. There's the tempo change. Maybe I should wave my arms around at this point. Um, it all worked out okay, and now I find myself conducting more than I ever did. Not so much because the band needs it, uh, not so much because my artist needs it, but because it does provide some stability uh, that people perceive. People perceive it from the audience. They say, oh, you have everything in control. I, the way you, the band is with you every time. And I say, yes, they are. Um, but they're going to be with me no matter what. That's mm -hmm. the, the God honest truth. They're going to be with me no matter what I'm doing. If I'm playing, if I'm nodding my head, if I'm waving my arm, uh, sometimes we have a click, sometimes we're live, uh, but it's a matter of the unit, the, the six band members, the two background vocalists, the lead singer, and our, our crew all being aware that we're all in the same space together always so even if something goes wrong it, you at least start together yeah let's yeah. Uh, 
numerous times tracks have gone out while we're playing yeah. but our front of house engineer is very very good if tracks go out he's mixing us the right way so that the live band sounds like we're owing the only thing that's there and uh that's the way it's always been yeah so we're always when fine. i i just saw you guys live for the first time mm-hmm. you know a couple of weeks ago and i w- i was impressed by that too that the it even with me listening with a critical ear i could not always tell if ever which songs had tracks and which songs didn't? Because you said it was about half and half, right? It's more like 80-20. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, we have a lot of things. Sometimes the track is just a click. Sometimes it's a click and a one vocal. Oh, Sometimes okay. it's a right. click and a, an acoustic guitar stem because we only have one guitarist on stage and you can only play so many, many, many parts at the same time. Right. Sometimes it's a string stem only. And then we supplement with live strings and then, uh, and then everything else. So it... It just depends on the song. Sometimes there's full tracks that we go with. So circling back to your three days from when you got the gig to your first show, they provided charts to you as well? Yes. Because now you basically do all the charts. That's right. right? So the charts you were given, someone were else they, did. were they good? Were they helpful? Were they accurate? They were helpful and for the most part, probably 90% accurate. The things that weren't accurate were just, it was sloppy. It didn't look like charts that I do. And having been a copyist since I was in high school, which is a weird thing to say, I've been writing charts for bands, or at least bands that I work in, since 1984. Uh, It wasn't the way I like to see charts. So I'd have to look at the charts and then sort of sketch out a few things. I know that's not the way you write this chord. And all these chords are layered over each other. So you start to memorize what you know it's supposed to be, even though you're looking at the wrong thing. And the nature of this job also is things change. And you don't often have time to rewrite the chart. So you have to pencil it in as fast as you can, knowing that it could change the very next day. But today, the D minor 9 is going to be a G13 sus because we need a 5 in the bottom instead of a 2 in the bottom. So everyone be aware, we're going 5. And be sharp, because if it's played wrong, someone's going to answer for it. It's, It's usually me. Are you managing the rest of the band's uh, personalities or are you getting them to conform to kind of, uh, like you said, the way you would do the charts? Are, are they now following your lead on, on how things are done, how they're learning the music or like how, just how they're, how they're playing the music? Well, personalities is one thing and how they play the music is another. Everyone this couldn't be a nicer group of musicians that I'm working with right now. And uh, my entire experience with Engelbert has been professional musicians who take care of business and play the music great. So I've never had an instance where I was afraid, "Uh uh-oh, they're not going to be able to play this. Uh, Everyone always nailed it. No matter what I gave them, no matter how quickly I gave it to them or how, you know, how much short time before the show, (laughs) I was writing a new uh, uh, Bows before we did a PBS special, and we finished it maybe 20 minutes before we taped a PBS special. It was crazy, but the energy was completely on. Everyone was very aware, and we got it all done. So uh, I'm not sure if the question is, do I ever get any blowback from people say, I don't have time to learn this? No one ever says that. Everyone is always down, and they... It's odd to be in a position that people actually respect the work that you're doing. But I think if you come in, you know, 
treating everyone else with the respect that they have earned over their careers and lives, uh, they'll give it back to you as well and always give you what you need. Are you responsible for, for forming the band? Do you pick the members? I do. And what are some of the characteristics you look for? Obviously, I mean, if they're if they're coming to you at, for this kind of gig, they're high-level musicians. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the things you're, you are looking for? It depends on the chair. Sometimes you need a great reader. Sometimes you need someone who's a great improviser and someone who can uh, roll with the pun- roll with the flow. Uh, you know, the I've been lucky to have a very solid rhythm section, piano, bass, drums, guitar, uh, and cats who can play anything who Engelbert has complete trust in. Uh, over the over the years, I've been. Uh, switching out different keyboard players as their professional lives change and taking the different uh, careers or different gigs. Uh, so I've that is tricky, finding the right type of keyboard player, someone who can do what is called for on this job. And it's not necessarily easy. Uh, it may seem easy at first, oh, I'm just playing strings, I'm playing organ parts, but making it sound right and blending with our tracks and doing our show and being also having a good ability to roll on the road, which I didn't realize was such a thing that's difficult, but apparently it is difficult to be on the road. And now after doing it for two years and with a family and uh, things at home that I have to be responsible for, um, it's tricky. You got to find the right, there it's personality. Who can you, you know, roll at four in the morning with uh, if you have to get on a bus to get an early flight to travel halfway across the country to do a show that day you know who's going to be okay and who's going to be not pleasant and are, are you looking for that during the interview process yes very much so are there any like questions that you're asking people to try and figure out that information without <laughs> them knowing what you're trying to, to learn uh yeah i mean uh i usually ask about i I hear them play. That's the first thing. Can they actually play? And once they can play, then I find out how they roll with other people. And they can you can usually tell. Um, I, I interviewed a large number of players to do the chairs I need to switch out. Um, and I always find the best qualified at the time. And I've been pretty lucky that I've gotten great people to do that. So someone that's coming out of music college now, what is something that they can do or a few things that they could do to make sure that when they're auditioning for someone like yourself, that they get the gig? Obviously, uh, you know, they have to be a great player, right? Because they're competing against the best players in the world. But what are other things that they could do to start prepping to be the guy that that, that you can roll with on the road? You know, the first thing that I noticed when I started auditioning players, was that sadly many of the players were more confident in their abilities than they should have been they were not ready for this sort of gig and when i send people music to prepare for an audition you know i expect it to be uh played correctly no matter what no excuses if you have it a day beforehand you can learn two songs if you consider yourself a professional musician when i went in for my audition i was sent three songs the day before i learned them and I got to the audition. I played them fine. They said, great. Uh, can you transpose one of these other songs by half step? And I said, yes, I can. <laughs> and I did it. Uh, having done that for Liza Minnelli in 
her living room on some very difficult music, I got worked, and I knew that it was difficult to do. Uh, so when players came to me and didn't have their just their their basic musicianship skills down, that was an instant turnoff. And I'm like, you know, I can't I can't use a person who can't first of all can't read well enough, and who can't improvise in the moment. Um, and I found that was the most difficult thing. And just what like was it baseball fundamentals? Fun got to be able to read, mm-hmm. got to be able to do rhythms. When I see someone auditioning and saying, "I'll just play with one hand and then follow along like this," I thought, "No, you don't belong here right now." Even though you're very nice, you're the wrong person for this for this job. Um, I interviewed someone who had had some previous music director experience uh, with a nutty artist. And I said, well, that is, uh, how is it that you have come to this position to be work uh, auditioning for me? And um, it came that just a position came available and a reference was made. And knowing that a person can roll with any situation and be able to improvise and read and have a good attitude the whole time. That's all I need, really. Um, the fundamentals were taken care of and the good attitude hired on the spot. Do you think attitude can be coached? I don't know. I mean, I've, I feel more secure in my abilities now than I did when I first began doing music but if I've like (laughs) I've always known that I was a good copyist and so I've not been cocky about it but I know that if I put music in front of someone it's easily read and it's correct and there should be any should be no problem with getting it played correctly the first or second time Um, with playing and I'll be the first to admit there are far better pianists than me and they've been in this position playing for Engelbert and they're they're great musicians great but they may not necessarily have the ability to lead the band or command the respect of the band or you know just professionally do the job uh so they're not right for the job i'm so can you learn what was the question? Can you coach yourself to? to can, yeah. Can do you think attitude can be coached, either self-coached, or do you have to coach anybody? Uh, I sometimes to, to I have attitude. to tell people on stage. You know, you gotta smile a bit more. And I'll be watching the people on stage, and I'll look over and I'll see someone focused on their part and doing this, and maybe getting their groove face on, or I'll see someone doing this, and I'll say, oh, you know, at this point, you notice I'm conducting. Uh, let's do a thing where we all just, whether you need to or not, look at me and look like you're having a good time. I'll bet you it will give a better impression of the show. And amazingly, everyone's cool with it. And it works. And uh, it comes off and it plays to the audience that uh, we're actually, uh, what's the word? Not coherent, but competent. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so much so that Everything just is smooth, but yeah, I mean, attitude is is tough. You have to have some experience. I think you can't go in and have a uh, you know, is it attitude or is it uh, 
uh, confidence because those are two different things i think you can if you have confidence in your abilities and you're not good then you're in trouble you really have to have those basic skills first so it sounds like the the again getting back to people that are that are just coming out of music college are still in it that one of the main things you are looking for is someone that it has the ability to grow right and not be cocky in in what they're doing you know they come out of college oh i got a degree i'm great i know what i'm doing um that could be a red flag for hey this person is going to be going to be trouble uh, so uh, i think it's important for people listening to this to, to hear you know from you that out of this conversation like like don't think that you know what you're doing you know you you had just said i'm i'm not the best and that attitude is what got you the position that you that you now have you know in the respect of, of all, all the musicians is that there there's never good enough you know there, there's always room that's, for improvement that's right and i'm always one to believe that uh you know i get asked to do a lot of stuff on the on this particular gig and i've never been one to say i can't do that I know that I can do whatever I'm asked to do. Nothing's ever been unreasonable. Sometimes the time frame is unreasonable, but that's when I see it as a challenge and something that I like to do. And if it's five o'clock, we're done with sound check, and we want one of the songs four BPM faster, and it's with a click track and backing tracks, and we have to tweak everything out, I will go to the dressing room and work on the laptop and get things prepared so that it's ready to go and have it for the show. I've been told maybe that I shouldn't be doing that. I should, you know, try it the next day. But I like doing it, so why not? That's really good. Um, focusing on a, on a mindset thing here for a minute, we talk a lot about the growth mindset as a put we the terms growth mindset and fixed mindset meaning that you are open to changing and growing versus stuck in your ways more or mm. less so i think that a lot of if not all successful musicians are would fall into the category of growth mindset and i think you definitely exemplify that as well and can you talk a little bit about how that developed for you or if that if you've always been that way or if you've ever put any conscious thought into being that way and trying to to change to be that way i don't know i maybe i was more growth oriented earlier on i feel like i i haven't settled into my ways but i've become more confident in my the things that i'm doing and know that what I'm doing is what I'm being asked to do uh, as far as growth because my, my, my current gig is not about a lot about change. It's about security. Well, and, not, not, and Not growth and change of even you as a musician, but like an example that comes to mind is right before you go on stage, you're asked to make a track 4 BPM faster. Yeah. So that would be even an example of a growth mindset. Like, yeah, sure. We're going to roll with that. We can do whatever you need. You know, even something like that, I would consider a growth mindset as mm. opposed to a fixed mindset of like, hey, man, the show's in an hour. This is the track. You got to deal with it. You can't put that back on the artist. Never you always do. have to absorb. No. I, that's kind of my point. Like you have to absorb all of that. And that's your growth mindset in this situation. Does that make sense? 
It does. Um, I would say that, yes, I, I, I guess as a leader of a group, usually in the band, and Dave, I've worked with you many times. I realized that most of the gigs I've done in the last 15 years have been with you. <laughs> and uh, whether I'm music director or you're the MD, uh, we've shared a lot of the responsibilities on things. And we've seen artists who need so much from us. And we're there's not one time that we haven't been able to deliver exactly what they need. Um, uh, I think that ability speaks well to people you know collaborating uh, whether it is that we're growing you know our mindset let's so, so to speak or just doing what is required i mean i don't think music is about being sedentary and, and picking one thing and sticking with it i mean it isn't for me uh, the last two years have been this job but i've changed in the last two years doing this job and it's been wonderful. I've, I've taken on more responsibilities over the time, even sort of co-producing some of the new music with the boss. And I'm totally fine with it. I didn't realize how comfortable I would be doing that until I actually stepped in the studio with him and watched what he was doing. And I was able to interface with the engineers and the studio owners and the management to make things go, I think, as smoothly as they, they can things that I didn't think I had the ability to do or until I was actually doing them and suddenly I realized, oh, this is going okay. Yeah, that's great. Uh, you brought up, you know, that you and I have a lot of history together playing all kinds of different gigs. Mm -hmm. Every kind of gig. Every kind of gig. <laughs> everything. You have such a better memory than me. You'll probably remember. I think the first time we played together was in 2003 in Dan Finnerty's garage. For a Not Dan true. Band. Okay, correct me. <laughs> the first time we played together was in a practice room with Dana Decker and Patik Desai, you and me, and oh, over yeah, there, yeah. and we were just reading through charts just for fun. Just for fun, okay. Just for fun. The first gig we ended up on was the Dan Band. Was that? The, that was the first was gig. It? I can't believe that I called you for that. You we must have done something else. No, David Hughes called me for it. David I, Hughes called you. Yeah, I was playing with him, and he was the bass player on it. That's right. He recommended me, but that's where I kind of got to know you. That's right. So where I'm going with all this is... One thing that I've always admired about you and I feel I've really learned from you over the years and tried to incorporate into my life is that, especially for me at that time, I was like very early 20s. I hadn't done a lot of like big high profile stuff or anything. And when we started doing like TV and all that, there was a lot for me to take on and keep my head straight. And I always, and you were the MD on that as well. And I always was struck by how from my outside perception, because I also didn't know you as well then, it struck me that you were just always very even and you were always all about getting the job done and taking care of business and you were always about the music and you didn't let outside uh, stressful factors, it seemed to me that never penetrated you at all. And I've always mm. wondered like how you've done that and I've tried to to move myself in that direction to where no matter what's going on, I can just like go inside myself and focus and do the job I need to do. Hmm. Uh, it's funny if that started in 2003 and then I think I did that job for 14 years from 99 through 2013. Um, 
over that time, I've worked with different band leaders, not necessarily music directors, but band leaders who, shall we say, were more difficult or less difficult than others. And having experienced all levels of band leader and all types of band leaders from the sweet, like, oh, you can show up whenever you need to, or you've got to be here three hours before the gig, I don't care what anybody says, to why aren't you uh, looking at me all the time, or... I mean, have you, you had, know, say, just for example, things thrown at your head on a gig? Uh, for example, I have had things thrown at me on a gig. <laughs> and yet... You remain on those gigs. And yet I remain, you know. Can we talk about that? We can talk about that. Uh, <laughs> you know, and it's strange. Uh, uh, the, the names will be left out to protect the innocent. Uh, but And the guilty. And the guilty. But you know what? Uh, there was a drive to be so good even in those crazy situations, the level of musicianship in whatever band I'm working in has always been very high. And especially in those difficult situations, everyone's a total pro. Uh, even the people who are maybe necessarily as together as they should be, they can play and they know the business so there's something to be gleaned from every experience, even if you do have to duck when a, a glass of ice gets thrown at you. <laughs> so just to to make this clear, I mean, you're saying that even in those situations with difficult personalities, what sustains you and drives you through it is just your unrelenting desire for high-quality, excellent music. You know, uh, that, I liked everybody in the band, also, I knew that I was having a good time for the most part, except for the, that those little moments. And I had to choose what was important to me. Of course, also, bread's good on certain gigs, so you decide where is your line. You'll put up with a certain amount for just the fact that it's a lot of money. Not Maybe. in a bad way. I don't mean that in a bad way. Yeah, not in a bad way. Uh, there were many things that were very good. Some days you'd get off a gig and you'd say, that was pretty amazing. There are other days when I get off the gig and I drive home and I have to put on some music to, uh, you know, uh, basically Roomba my brain from <laughs> whatever I was listening to on the gig to something completely different. Mm -hmm. uh, it just depends. Uh, but I always found that there's something positive you can take from every situation, even if someone is screaming their lungs out at you. Uh, maybe there's something I need to learn. And I could even find something... Uh, when I duck, when a glass comes my way, I think, you know, something must have pushed this person to the limit. Is there something that I can do to alleviate that person's tensions next time around? And I think pretty much I've tried to always do that. So you've, you've always tried to find the positive, positive always, situations. Always, always. Always. Have you worked with musicians that uh, you, you you found that haven't yes and what it, I mean do you say anything to them or I try um, it's tricky when they're your music director and I'm working for them and I find that they aren't very helpful and uh, just not nice uh, but my job isn't to make them nice my job is to do what they want and if it's something musical I'll definitely do it if it's not musical or if it's something uh personal that they want me to do that's like the 
I don't know what they wear a different color clothes on stage because you look like an idiot when you wear blue. I they, they say maybe they might say that to me. I don't know. Um, but if it's musical, I can always deliver it. Um, but if, if their personality is just so abrasive that I can't work with them, uh, I will easily tell an artist I'm happy to do this show, and then uh, you can get someone else the next time. As it happens, I told uh, an artist that once, and then next time the show was around, I was the MD, and the other guy was gone. Um, that's just the way it works sometimes. Uh, what does an artist need from his music director? Does he need someone who's going to be an a-hole and smack the band around just to get his point? Or can you get uh, your same results using different techniques? And I've always found that it doesn't help to yell and be a jerk. That's I'm not uh, that sort of band leader. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So just being a good person. Right? I think generally, I mean, the, those who aren't are the guys who honestly don't get the calls or they get talked about a lot behind their back, which is not nice. It happens, though. I mean, people like to hear. You know, unfortunately, that's people. They, they love to see like the train wreck. And it's not it's not very nice. So the theme that's building here is is that there's no ego. You're always in service to the music and, and in service to the artist. Certainly, uh, there's no room for ego, at least uh, not for me. I mean, uh, what what am I going to say? Uh, every time we I do a show, I'm the piano player and I wave my arms around and I conduct a band. And mostly, the satisfaction I get is the joy from a great show. Uh, this last run, I was out with the band. We had... Uh, 90% great shows. N- uh, 10 shows, nine of them were awesome. One was good. The good one leaves a hole in my heart. But the great ones were just outstanding. And I I get more from that than from, I don't know, any, I don't need an accolade or, or an award. Knowing that we did a good job is payment enough but I'll take the paycheck too. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think this is really important for people to hear. Is is that you? It's really about the music, and it's about having a good time, and that's the reward. I mean, like you said, like yeah, it's, yeah. You I mean you have to do this for a living, obviously. And I I want to say this. I worked for a, a singer songwriter for many years, and he was a novice, but he really wanted to do this music and he was driven and he loved music um, and he hired a professional band and he hired me and a producer to work for him and we worked for probably seven or eight years together doing music now ultimately the project folded in on itself after a time uh, but he was always so complimentary to what we the band were doing we came back for more all the time it wasn't the greatest pain gig in the world but musically it was satisfying and we got to stretch out and do things that you might not normally do on a normal gig and you know that you can't get a professional musician who's working for great money to come and do a gig that's low bread uh just uh because they won't do it there has to be something in it for them and it's sometimes just being able to be creative and get satisfaction out of playing something that's difficult or creative or uh, 
uh, expanding. There's the growth. You get growth from playing something that you might not normally do. I've been working for 25 years for the Orchestra Surreal. Uh, Ross Wright leads a band called the uh, Elvis Schoenberg's Orchestra Surreal. From the beginning, it's never been something that's that has made a ton of money, but the music's super difficult and it's super fun to play and great musicians do it and we all do it usually just to get together and have, you know, vegan chili on a Thursday afternoon during rehearsal and then do a gig where we can where we can wear nutty costumes and play strange music. And everyone does it happily. Mostly happily. <laughs> So let's take a, a slight turn here and mm -hmm. talk about working with artists. Mm -hmm. We were mentioning that in the beginning uh, before we went live. Uh, have you had to like develop that skill? I'm talking about you as a producer in your studio, uh, develop that skill working with an artist and, and pulling the best out of an artist. Yes. And, and can you talk to that and, and maybe like some tricks that you've learned or tips that you can give people that might just be getting into that world? Uh, I find, well, when we say artist, I mean usually vocalist because that's who I'm working for usually as a pianist you work for a ton of singers um, and I didn't realize that until <laughs> I uh, hired a keyboard player recently and he said oh yeah all I do is I I work for for singers all the time singer singer singers and I thought realized well, that's kind of what I do and I realized as a middle schooler I played for my sister who's a singer and that's what I did and then I Worked for the Young Americans, working in a dinner theater, working for singers. I'm a pianist. That's what I do. I guess the music really is about the voice and getting the story across, even if it is a fun song, whatever. Um, but working with a, a producer named Bob Esty, uh, who'd worked with you know uh, Donna Summer and Barbara Streisand, you know, huge, huge uh, artists. Uh, he was great at pulling vocal performances from from singers and would get the non-standard way of doing it and I studied this I thought well that's a strange way of doing it and then I realized oh that's a skill that I should really have if I'm going to be working with these uh, types of artists and people would come in and I started to listen more openly to what's actually happening around me and being open to what a singer is laying down in the studio I think is is helpful um, but also being aware, how can I fix what I just heard if I know I need to get something? I can't say, uh, could you do that again and with a, a longer S or a shorter S and then hold out this, you know, technical stuff is maybe not going to get what you need. Uh, learning how to interface with an artist, a singer, a instrumentalist to get what you want is the game and making people comfortable in your space that I'm I've had it in my home studio for the last five or six years uh, is key. And I've learned over time that I can actually do that and making people comfortable, you know, putting up nice pictures, whatever. Um, whatever it takes. And sometimes it's just a joke. And I've got, you know, I'm not too serious a person, I think, in the studio or most of the time. And sometimes that uh, acts to my detriment and which is why the fact that there's a microphone in front of me right now is, is danger all around um uh i've had my monitor engineer say you don't know how many times i've muted your your microphone to your artist so he doesn't hear your stupid jokes it's okay that's what i do but uh yes i i definitely have learned how to bring about 
an artist's ability to be more comfortable and and put out you know make changes to what they're doing without thinking that they're actually making changes to what they're doing and so I can get a better final product and I could also I can cut an S and you know chop a a, 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 a line and make it be exactly what I want later on but you know they don't have to know that and was there a process that that got you to this point or is it just trial and error uh it wasn't error necessarily but just repetition doing it over and over and over again for people you know i found the worse a singer is the more i get out of it because i can actually i have to learn how to find the right parts and my memory gets a lot better you know let's say you have 13 takes of a verse and sure you can comp it all together but you also have to remember what was the best take and i'm finding myself taking notes as we're going and i'm just looking making notes verse four that t was long bar 45 get this and then i look and glance down and i say hey let's do another take like this and i say it in the nicest possible way sometimes i actually get back what i want and i go perfect done uh but repetition, doing it a lot. For me, uh, there's no there's no substitute for just having hands-on experience doing this stuff. This is why my first Engelberg gig, I didn't have enough hands-on. I was buried and afraid. Now, uh, I've I got my music on stage all the time because I'm always bringing new people in. Uh, but my show is memorized, so I can keep my eyes on my artist and and uh, the band and the audience and. As the case was uh, on a cruise ship we were playing on in February, a rolling monitor rack that was about to crush me. Um, things happen. <laughs> so you just go with it. You go with it yeah. and be uh, trust that your monitor engineer and the uh, and the stage manager can grab the gear before it crushes mm-hmm. you. <laughs> so just a, a point for people listening: um, if you're getting into production and you're getting into working with artists, um, you've heard several times on this show now the power of repetition and kind of honing your craft through experience. You don't have to wait 15 years. You can go out and find people that uh, that maybe they're not at the, the height of their career. They're just getting started, right? But work with them for free so that you can build your chops so that one day you're going to get in front of an artist and they're going to think, wow, this person is a pro because you've put in the hours. So you don't have to wait for success. You know, you can you can be clocking your hours along the way. You just got to go out and do it. I do that right now. I built a studio to record my piano uh, about six years ago. And, you know, there's not a lot of acoustic piano recording sessions happening all the time. But when I get them, I do it. And then after that, the session's done, the piano's tuned, it's paid for. Then here's the secret. I call my piano friends. I said, come over and let me record you. I'm going to try some new things. And invariably, I can always find a pianist who wants to come and record on a beautiful-sounding piano that's well-miked. And I just say, I'm going to be trying some things, so you do what you're going to do and let me mess around. Mm -hmm. And I try things all the time. I've learned how to get decent vocal recordings now, so I'm not worried about that. Um... But uh, recording piano, recording drums, sometimes with you, Dave, uh, recording guitar occasionally. I, I'm always experimenting. And I, I will say, there's real engineers out there. I just happen to be a guy with a room and a bunch of mics, and I want to do it. It's fun. And I experiment until I know that I can actually do it, and then I can charge someone real money for it. <laughs> right. It's, a, it's such a big thing. It's 
you know, take that you don't always have to get paid. You know, like you're the one of the things you are constantly talking about today is just the enjoyment of the process, you know, enjoyment of the music and what you're doing. And that can be satisfaction in itself. So people, but it is good to get paid. Of, of course. Right. <laughs> but like, you like got to play the long game sometimes yeah. and go, okay, well, I'm going to get a bigger paying gig. If I'm the guy putting in the, the time when everybody else is, is out trying to hustle and get a gig, I'm going to really learn the craft and see the bigger picture. So I think that's one of the things people can can take away from this conversation is that yeah, has I, been your process. I have had a lot of people now come back because they like what they're getting from my studio, from my production value. And, you know, I, I'm not an engineer, but I can certainly get someone to lay down a clean sound and make them comfortable enough in the space that I'm providing them. Right. And if the space is inviting and uh, warm, they're pretty much ready to go. Excellent. So a, a lot of valuable takeaways for people today. That's really cool. So as we as we bring it to a close here, uh, is there a piece of advice or maybe a couple of pieces of, of advice that you would give musicians in music college or just starting their career? Uh, it could be anything, you know, whatever you think. Yeah, and I was just mentioning this to Dave. Um, Mike Garson, who I mentioned before, pianist for David Bowie, but also just a very creative and uh, empathetic musician sort of set me down a number of years ago and we were working on a project together and he said, you know what? Uh, I see what you're doing and and I believe what you're doing, but you need to take a look at what you're doing and make sure that you're being truthful to what you want and to the people around you uh, professionally. And I, we were discussing, I don't know, maybe it was an invoice or a, or a, a number of hours or something. And I said, well, okay, what, what can we do? What can we talk about here? Basically said, you know, this is, I feel this from you. And I thought, oh gosh, did I not represent what I did correctly? And I remember thinking, I don't want to be dishonest about this. I have to really think about it. So over the last few years, I very much question everything that I do. Is it, am I presenting it in the right way? And am I being honest with the amount of work that I do uh, in any project? Am I saying I'm more valuable than I am? Am I saying less value? I, I try not to boast about it. Uh, but his approach to that and honesty in music, whether it is that you're playing uh, major seven and major six chords for Engelbert, or you're playing crazy altered uh, uh, avant-garde free jazz stuff for, you know, Philip, I don't know, someone. Uh, or you're playing a rock show, or you're playing silly music, or you're playing at a, a church or a synagogue. You have to be truthful to everything that you're doing and be completely present in the moment. And that's what I found about Mike. He was telling me, always be very much aware of what you're doing and the reasons you're doing it. And uh, when I was young, Gur, I just did whatever I wanted, uh, I think. As far as music, I thought it was fun. I was trying to get a gig, maybe trying to make a buck, you know. Uh, I didn't know what direction I wanted to go, but I wasn't thinking about the honesty of whatever it was. And I think that whatever I'm doing now, 
I try and play with as much honesty and integrity as I can. Uh, especially, like, I don't know, I, uh, you don't want to be in the way of anything. You know, you have to play everything as a pianist. You have to play it so that it supports the group or the situation. And I could always bring attention to myself and play something that's not in the moment or, or that's that's brings attention to myself and takes focus off of the whole and suddenly becomes about me. Um, luckily, I don't have the, the rockin' chops that are going to do that or start slamming around like a crazy, you know, rock piano player. That's not what I need to do either unless it calls for that, in which case I will. I think my sensibilities over time have sort of been honed to know when to do those things. So being aware of every, whatever gig it is, being aware of what's being called on you to do and not draw focus from the whole picture. For me, that's why I keep getting calls for the next thing because the job gets done, it's good, and no one gets hurt. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, 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 like I said, I'm not the flashiest player in the world, but uh, uh, I, I have a feeling, I hope that the people that I work for are happy in my abilities to let them do what they have to do and move on to the next whatever it is. I recently heard Tim Ferriss say on a podcast, he said, um, it's amazing how successful you can become by consistently avoiding making stupid decisions as opposed to always trying to outsmart somebody. And I think that to translate that to music is kind of what you're saying. Uh, well, I'm you're not, not, not trying to be the flashiest. You're being solid and, and consistent. Solid and consistent. That's, um, you know, uh, maybe I'm the Richie Cunningham, you know, humdrum <laughs> of of the band, but I don't need to be anything else. Uh, right, uh, it's I, not a negative thing at all. No, I, I, I do music because it's wonderful to do, and I can support my family, and I can have time to go out for a run. I can sit here with my friends and do a podcast, and I can still play music and be creative when I want in my studio and uh, enjoy the good things. And they're all good things. Now, how can people connect with you uh, online? You know, I'm the least social media aware person there is. I I have, are you going to say? I have three. You, you have a three friend cap on I have Facebook. three friends on Facebook. And you're already maxed out. I'm, I, and and I'm a friends. third of them. Dave and his wife are two thirds of them. That's right. That's it. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, you know, uh, I, I'm in the union book. You know, I'll happily do a union gig. I'm in the union book. I'm listed in the white pages. David Arana, you know, I think there's a web page, but I don't think I've ever done it. Uh, but, you know, girls, email me. Maybe there's show notes. You can throw that in there. Yeah, for sure. Um, does, the, does the studio have a website? Studio doesn't even have a website. Well, you know, because I, I live in a place that you don't really want to draw attention to your studio. But shall we say the studio is a lovely place to be and be creative in, as you both know. Tell people to go to my website and ask for you, and I'll put them in touch with you. That's right. DaveJohnstone.com, right? That's right. 
Mr. David Arana, it's been a pleasure having you. I think uh, our listeners got a lot out of it today. So we appreciate you being here. And uh, all of you people listening, as we say, keep walking. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Musician Mindset Podcast with Dave Johnstone and Jason Land. You can contact the show through Facebook and Instagram at Musician Mindset Podcast. If you like what you heard, please leave a written review and a five-star rating on iTunes.